Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Ask Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. Uh, this is the first time for me where I get to introduce my co-host who's sitting right next to me. Uh, welcome, uh, Ray Wong, CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and he's working on his second book. Oh, cat's out of the bag. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray. <laughs> we can elbow each other. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashtar, Chief, <laughs> Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CIO, CMO followers on Twitter. More importantly, he was also an author and also one of the top posts on Huntington Post, as well now as ZDNet. But more importantly, we're here to talk to another recently best-selling ah, author. Who do we have? All right, I had to cut your bio down because we only have 20 minutes, but I'm going to give it a go. Uh, we welcome Tiffany Bova, uh, who is the Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. I have a privilege of working with her and learning from her all the time. She's the author of a new best-selling book, book, Growth IQ, Get Smart About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business, which was recently chosen by Inc. Magazine and Thrive Global as the top business book of this summer. Tiffany's a top influencer on customer experience, digital transformation, future of work, sales with more than 1 million Twitter impressions, 150,000 LinkedIn views per month. And she's also a regular contributor to Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Marketing Matters, Wharton Business Radio, and more. Her podcast, What's Next with Tiffany Bola has been featured has featured guests like Ariana Huffington, Dan Pink, Tom Peters, and has become one of the top 100 business and marketing po podcasts on iTunes for last year, and won the top sales and marketing top uh, podcast by Top Sales Magazine. Tiffany was also recently recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 37 sales experts you need to follow on Twitter, LinkedIn's top sales influencer, Brand Quarterly Magazine Top 50, marketing thought leaders, and one of the most powerful and influential women in California, according to the National Diversity Council. She's a must follow on Twitter. I mean, I'm talking actively every day, putting gold nuggets of wisdom on Twitter at T-I-F-F-A-N-I underscore B-O-V-A. Welcome back, Tiffany. And it sounds like, and it looks like you've done quite a bit since the last time you were on the show. Uh, it's so great to be back with two of my favorite guys. Like, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than with Ray and Bala today, that's for sure. Awesome. Well, hey, this is awesome. Last time you were on the show was episode 37. We are on, oh my God, think about where we are, 121. <laughs> Anyways, look, you wrote this awesome book. Um, I was just at Harvard Business Review Press yesterday. They were completely blown away by everything uh, that was out there. And, and, and the question around growth is really important. Like, why is achieving growth really, really hard to navigate and getting even harder? Yeah, the, you nailed it. It's getting harder. Like, you know, I know, Vala, both you to post all the time. And I think, Ray, I got that stat initially from you that how many Fortune 500 companies were around 25 years ago versus around today. I know you know that stat off the top of your head, right? But it's getting harder and harder and harder, right? 52. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but that, that number is getting harder. And, and so ultimately, it's just this I think people are really struggling with what are the things they need to be doing. And unfortunately, everyone looks for the one thing that's going to get them back on track. And uh, through, throughout the book, I pull out the fact that it is never just one thing. Yeah, talk about how you advise some of the top business leaders running the biggest and best businesses around the world in terms of not searching for that one thing. How do you, how do you approach incremental improvements or what's the right path to growth rather than looking for that home run? Yeah, it, it's a great question because a lot of this has to do with a mindset shift. What has worked for companies in the past in growth is just not playing out the same way it used to. And so the companies that are continuing to grow today are the ones that when they're growing, they're looking for the next growth path versus waiting until it starts to slow down and then they're a little bit in a panic mode. So I spend time with executives asking them a couple of questions. One, what's working today? What's not working? 
has the context of your market shifted? Like, are your customers different? Are you trying to get into new industries or new, what has happened around you? New acquisitions, new startups, what's changed? And when they start telling me the hundred things that have changed in the last 12 months, and then I say, so how, now tell me how your sales and marketing efforts have changed. And then they go, oh yeah, we haven't changed that. <laughs> like, you know, we're still doing an industry coverage model or a geo coverage model, or we still only sell direct or we only sell. And then you go, well, you just listed all the things that have changed around you, but you're still selling and marketing the same way. So we probably need to start there. So, so, so the business model shifted and they left their sales and marketing orgs the same? Yeah, the same. The same? This is crazy. <laughs> well, well, sometimes, right, the business model shifted around them and they haven't even fixed their business model problem. Ooh, wow. Which, okay. That's a different challenge, right? But let's make the assumption that they've shored up the products. They've changed potentially, uh, you know, how their brand is perceived and where they're marketing and sort of what their value proposition is. Like they've made all those edits uh, and mm -hmm. all those adjustments, but they don't want to disrupt the revenue apple cart. So, you know, they're worried about changing sales and I use sales in air quotes, right? It could be however they're selling, right? Transacting with customers. They don't want to impact it because they're worried if that gets in trouble or they make the wrong move there, that then it will impact uh, their, their, their top line numbers. Sure. I want to get back to your book. Um, incredible number of use cases. So congratulations, because I know how much calories you need to burn when you highlight dozens of companies that have very specific formula to growth and you were able to capture those patterns, recognize and articulate concisely um, in, in your book. And, and this is why I believe the Seth Godins and Dan Pinks and Tom Peters of the world have called your book uh, a must read. So again, congrats on that. But having said that, my question is, what did you learn that you didn't know before you started? Because I know you were working on your thesis for years and then you were trying to test it in real time with executives. In the process of writing the book, was there an aha moment where you said, wow, I had a blind spot about this, but now I see it so much more clearly? Yeah, I, I will tell you this. I thought the aha was the fact that I distilled growth down to 10 very distinct paths, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And some of them are a modern spin on like the Ansoff matrix, which has been around since 1957. Like somebody might read that book and go, oh, there's nothing new there. Good, great. What's, you know, the point is, is that I wasn't trying to make it new. I was trying to modernize some of those tried and true strategies with what we have available today, whether it's digital marketing or whatever it might be. So that was one thing. But what did stand out as something new was the patterns around the combination of things companies do and in what sequence they do them. That was the aha for me. I thought the first aha was 10 growth paths. And I was kind of like, oh, this is interesting. But then when I started realizing it was how people matched those growth paths together and then in which sequence and in what timing they did it, that's when I really said, I think I'm onto something. And, and back to your question, Val, about the stories, I read almost 100 business books when I was preparing for writing mine. And I said, I want to write a book that I would want to read, number one. Number two, what hadn't been said. And combination and sequence has not been pulled out it was going after a particular strategy and that was gonna solve the problem, the one thing, right? Versus looking at it in combo. Uh, and telling stories was a great way for the story to tell my story right. versus me to espound my wisdom and say what I'm saying is correct. I'd rather have the story show the story, yeah. Yeah, but you know what's funny? Like you, you actually go deep on technique Right? Everyone's talked about tools, they talk about leadership, but that technique about how you get to the right path, the right sequence, that's the magic sauce. Let's, let's go to, a little deeper there and take yeah. a use case like McDonald's. Like you, you love them as an example of growth. What, how did they get that sequence right? Mm -hmm. And give us a little bit of context behind uh, what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah, so McDonald's is a fantastic example. 10 years of a growth stall, meaning they were growing, 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 and then all of a sudden it just sort of plateaued. And so what they, yep. and, and, but what they did was the same old thing, add more things to the menu. You know, oh, we need to add more salads. We need to add more drinks. We need to give customers more options. That'll bring more customers in. But what ended up happening was it overwhelmed the consumer. And the, the negative effect of adding more menu items was people had to stand in line longer or the drive-through was longer. So guess what it impacted? Customer experience. So then guess what happened? People stopped coming in. So 
the adding of the menu items was the old way they had fixed potentially growth stalls in the past, but they weren't staying true to the customer experience. So then finally, they decided after, I don't know, 10 years of the customer saying, we want breakfast all day, that they said, hey, let's have breakfast all day. So listening to the customers, they had heard it before, but they knew it was operationally really difficult to do. So on Friday, they make a decision. I don't know what day they made it, but let's say Friday, they make the decision. On Monday, they didn't say breakfast all day. It would have failed and failed miserably. So this goes back to the sequence. They first had to reduce the menu, reorganize the kitchen, retrain yeah. the staff, wow. get 3,500 franchisees to make the decision. They had to change a lot of things operationally before they pulled the trigger uh, in order to make that successful. And sure enough, it was the first move that they made that turned around growth and then they had quarter over quarter over quarter. And now they're starting to stall again. So what's gonna be next? So now they're pivoting more towards digital. But that's a great example of trying to grow by adding more products and having the negative impact and then having to go back to streamline it. But we get our hash browns now during the day. It's just freaking awesome. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think that fast food is probably the biggest US export. Ever. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, there's people all around the world yeah. getting fat and heart attacks because of us. But yeah. yeah, that's kind of yeah, our way. Starbucks just opened their first store in Italy. So even it's it's not just burgers, it's burgers and coffee. Um, Absolutely. You, uh, you know, so even though you're a celebrity at Salesforce, uh, you noted in Growth IQ that a celebrity name alone won't ensure your company's growth. Now, we've seen, for example, in the sneaker world, Adidas is crushing it. Uh, we saw we saw just the last couple of weeks. Nike is endorsing Serena Williams and celebrities and athletes to kind of uh, revitalize. I, I guess I would say their marketing engine. Although they've always been great at marketing. So can you expand on the, your your thoughts about why it's not just the celebrity that's going to help you fuel your growth? Yeah, it's a great question. I do a couple of case studies in the book. One on Red Bull, uh, where Red Bull started outside the U.S. Uh, and same thing, they needed to, well, first of all, they created their own category and they took a good 10 years before they ever came into the US to try to go against the big brands, i.e. Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Uh, and so they had built a beachhead, but they did it by doing unconventional strategies from a marketing perspective to create these raving fans, a very specific demographic. And they were celebrities in extreme sports and they were celebrities and people who were pushing the envelope. And so there's a great example. And they didn't spend any money on marketing. It was all this sort of flywheel effect of, of how these celebrities in these industries Drinking Red Bull was going to, and I have to say in air quotes, since they were sued, give you wings, right? Because it doesn't really give you wings. I didn't know that, but it doesn't really give you wings. So uh, ultimately, they used these celebrities to do that. And so the other two stories I use in the book is Jessica Alba with The Honest Company, and then uh, Kylie Jenner with Kylie Cosmetics. Uh, and Kylie Cosmetics is one I get asked a lot about. Uh, because I used that very specifically, that she has been able to, depending on what numbers you're looking at, build a $650 or $700 million business with less than 20 employees. Now, now you hit another point, which most people don't think about, which is really the ecosystem, right? And people sometimes partner, sometimes there's co-opetition, sometimes they're directly uh, in each other's face. But you explain how to achieve growth through co-opetition. How is this different from having a strong partner? Yeah, this is one which the technology industry, which you guys both know very well, has done forever. You know, Wintel was probably the best cooperative relationship, you know, ever created. And then you had VCE with VMware and Cisco and EMC as another example. And I like to use the USB. There's a great example of cooperation at scale globally. You have oh, a yeah. USB anywhere in the world in any kind of technology, maybe outside of Apple, and it works. You know, at the end of the day, that was a way of competitors working together for a better customer experience. No, it's amazing. It's the only place where we can actually plug anywhere to the same right. outlet. I mean, but, but that's the point. It could not have happened if competing brands didn't agree that that was going to that that was the right thing to do for the customer. So now you see it happening with Tesla, with batteries and sharing technology around autonomous vehicles and AI. Um, and really trying to pull things together so that the one plus one equals three uh, is, is really the goal. And so coopetition is one that is starting to take shape outside of tech. So you just mentioned Vala Starbucks. You know, they did a deal with Nespresso. Yeah. You'd say that's pretty competitive. But oh, yeah. why did they do that? Right. Because they're trying to get into new markets, serve the customer better and find a way 
to do things. Or Nike with Amazon. They swore they'd never open a store on Amazon. Or, you know, lockers inside of coal. Or Sears doing tires through Amazon and Fire TV with, with Best Buy. I mean, it, you see coopetition playing itself out for growth all over the place. Sure. So, you know, you've been uh, a, a growth evangelist at Salesforce for three years. But prior to that, you were Gartner Fellow and you spent many, many years guiding growth paths for incredibly successful, you know, Fortune 100 companies. How did that experience as an analyst, where you are, you know, in the trenches advising some of the best and brightest executives in the world, influence your thinking with your book, Growth IQ? Well, I had to be really careful to not write a book where I only use tech examples because that's my, been my whole life and my whole career. So I was really conscious about trying to be fair to all industries, right? So I could show examples. And so I, you know, even the Wintel and, and VCE example, I was a little nervous about like only using tech. Uh, but the last two and a half years has given me such amazing exposure outside of technology of companies that are really pushing the envelope in healthcare and consumer packaged goods and hospitality and travel. And uh, it's really been inspiring. But I'd say that the common thing I'd tell you is whether I'm talking to a massive CPG company who's trying to solve a distribution challenge, or I'm talking to a massive technology company who's trying to solve a distribution challenge, it's the same challenge. Yeah. It's just different players on the chessboard. They call them different things. They call them agents. They call them resellers. You know, they, it, you're selling a laptop, you're selling ketchup. You know, you're, you know what I mean? But it's, it's, technically, it's, it's sort of all the same. So a lot of what I was able to gather over my, my career running uh, sales, marketing, and service organizations, and then being an analyst and now being here, plays itself out anywhere in the world that I go. I can almost definitely... If I can get what they're trying to get at, I can use an example from another industry that helps them see their way through. All right. Well, hey, I got to ask you this question. I, there's millions of people watching and they want to know who are your mentors? Who are the people that inspired you? Um, what drives you? And, and how did you get here? So, so I, I would say this. I would say that I used to think that my uh, mentors were people that I could name. And I've realized over the last two and a half years that I get to travel and I meet people that I didn't know. I had, you know, that changed something or, you know, exposed me to something that they inspire me every day uh, to do very different things. And the 10th chapter in my book actually was called Unconventional Strategies. I thought it was going to be like something like freemium. Uh, and after working here two and a half years, I made it all about doing well by doing good you know, sort of giving back and paying it forward and sort of purpose over profit. And so now I'm inspired by so many people that I get to surround myself with every day, including the two of you, you know, especially I've known, oh, known you both for a very long time. But, but I would say, you know, I, I was really blessed that when I went down this path of writing the book and I reached out to people who have indirectly mentored me for so many years, uh, were willing to put their name on the book and endorse it. And so, you know, Tom Peters, whom was the first business book I ever wrote, uh, read, and then he put his name on my book was surreal, right? Mm -hmm. Ariana Huffington, like changed the trajectory of my career when I met with her and she asked me to write for HuffPost and it changed everything for me. Dan Pink, to sell as human, you know, he really taught me how to tell a story about, you know, something that maybe not uh, many people understand. And then Seth Godin, he was the reason I decided to write the book. He said, you really should write the book. So, you know, ultimately I, I've been very, very blessed by people who didn't know they were my mentors, but, but have absolutely been my mentors. All Disrupt TV alumni. Yeah, yeah. Dan Pink. That's yeah, for Dan yeah, Pink. Right. We, we, gotta get Dan, we gotta get Dan Pink on his Yeah, thing. but I was on first. I was on yeah. first. My last question, uh, Tiffany, I'm the CEO of a company and I have your book in my hand. Yes. And I only have one copy. And I ask you, who do I give this to? The chief revenue officer, the chief marketing officer, the chief digital, the chief human resource. Who am I gonna give this one copy to and why? Have they read it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the sequence. Yeah. It's sequence and context. They, they haven't read it. I want them to read it, then give it to somebody, right? And who's, it, the first? who's the first line of business? 
that will benefit the most from reading a Let's book. say they've read it. Let's say they've read it. Yeah, so I was just kidding. But, you know, so I would say this. The challenge for me, if they think about growth and sales and they hand it to the sales leader, you know, one of the things I call out in the book, I call the seller's dilemma, which is really a play on Clayton's, uh, you know, innovator's dilemma, is salespeople, we're running, right? We're running very fast to hit quarterly numbers. And if you're, if you're publicly traded, that CEO does not want to disrupt that sales leader, right? So that it may not be the first place you go because they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. So I'm not sure that's where I'd start. So it either has to be somebody who is like a chief customer officer, right? Who's really starting to think about from a customer's perspective, how do we need to lean into this? And so if you don't have a CCO, maybe it's the CMO, but I worry if you start with sales, it'll get stalled, right? Because the salesperson is going to go, what do you want me to do? Read this book? or hit the numbers. Super tactical. We are live here with Tiffany Bova, best-selling author and global customer group innovation evangelist at Salesforce. Uh, you can follow her at Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-I underscore B-O-V-A. So thanks for being on the show. And oh, thanks for guys, it was such a pleasure. Congrats, Tiffany. Congrats. Thank you guys, take care. She's wonderful, always accessible and super smart. So uh, it's good to have, uh, and our book is great. Our book is great. And we talked about, you, you actually mentioned partnerships and you talked about growth and acceleration and partnerships. And this is a great segue to our next guest. We have uh, Robert or Bob Glazer uh, is the founder and CEO of Global Performance Marketing Agency, Acceleration Partners. And he's also the co-founder and chairman of Brand Cycle. Under Bob's leadership, Acceleration Partners has received numerous company culture awards, including number four on Glassdoor's Employees Choice Award, Ad Age's Best Places to Work, Entrepreneur's Top Company Culture, Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work, Great Places to Work, and Fortune's Best Small and Medium Workplace, and Boston Globe's Top Workplace. We should have met in his office. Listen, you know, that was a big mistake on our part. You're like, we have this extraordinary company that's about 10 miles. We don't have have an office. That's part of the reason we talk about that. Okay, all right. (laughs) So Bob's uh, also proud to have been named Glassdoor's top CEO of small and medium companies in the U.S. list, ranking number two out of 50. Bob's past recipient of the Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40 Award and uh, is an advisor board member of several high growth companies. Bob's a columnist for both Forbes and Inc. and regularly contributes to numerous outlets, including Entrepreneur, Fast Company, Huffington Post, uh, and Success Magazine. He has a Friday Forward newsletter, which is now kind of religiously on my Friday read. I found out that Bob likes to like cycle 200 miles um, as a beginner cyclist, which we'll maybe talk about that. It's about perseverance and, 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 and grit and how to uh, build character in his Friday newsletter, his most recent. A weekly inspirational newsletter that reaches over 35,000 uh, readers worldwide. He's uh, recently uh, authored the international best-selling book, Performance Partnerships, which we're going to talk about. He's a great follow on Twitter at Robert underscore Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R. Welcome, Bob, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. Excited to be here. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. You know, we just ended a segue around partnerships, talking about ecosystems and where they're going. As you know, you know, one of the hardest things uh, when you partner with folks is figuring out what you won't do. Right? Because if you understand what you're not going to do, you have at least have a shot working with someone else um, to, to create that partnership. Um, we think about that often in dimensions, right? Of the, the roadmap, the offering, how you go to market, what's happening on the marketing side, and what's happening in the community ecosystem and the support. Um, how does performance marketing accelerate all this? Yeah, I mean, performance marketing, it's, it's been around for, for a while, and I think it's been a little misunderstood and is, is making a comeback as, as technology improves. But really, you know, for the history of time, you know, there's that, the old adage from 100 years ago, only 50% of my marketing works, I just don't know which half. And, and the problem is we have a lot of technology and a lot of measurement these days, yet most folks are, are, are no better in, in, in knowing that because they're doing so many things across uh, so many different channels. And I feel like it's always win-lose, right? You either do something and you get a better return than you paid for, or you pay for something and you get a better return. So, so performance marketing really flips all this on its head and says, look, here are the outcomes that I, business A, here's the outcomes I am looking for. Here's what these outcomes are worth to me and creates kind of an ecosystem of going out to partners, encouraging them to take risk and only paying them when you get those outcomes. 
And we're just seeing more and more people move their marketing budget to this model. As they say, like, I don't want to, I don't want to get caught up in, in a lot of this win-lose stuff. Or you tell me you're a genius at um, doing X and you want $20,000 a month. How about I give you $5,000 each time you get X? You know, if I, if I want to get on podcasts rather than paying a retainer, how about it's $2,000 for these type of podcasts and $3,000. And, and technology has, has now really come that lets you track and measure all these things and, and think of it as like a big escrow. So people get paid when they do what they said they were going to do. And you can enter into these partnerships that are enabled by digital. Well, sounds like a smart contract on a blockchain. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a slide on that. It's kind of funny. I, I feel like the affiliate industry has been operating with all the elements of, of blockchain for a while. There's no, there's no need for the distributed ledger, but, but the, when you sign up for a partner program and affiliate program, you actually agree to, uh, you know, like on my iPhone, I, I click and accept the agreement rather than negotiating paper. I set up my bank account. I, I'm offered the terms. Really all that's automated, which if you think about, hundred of those deals going through business development versus going through a software process like that. It certainly allows you to onboard tons of partners. And by the way, these guys don't all need different deals. I can change their rate, but they all need the same agreement. They need the same basic creatives and support and all that stuff. So just a lot more standardization to the partnership uh, world. Sure. So I'm going to go back to, um, I referenced your, your, your newsletter today, but you know, you, you have this, balancing act as a CEO, I would assume. Again, yeah. I haven't been a CEO, but, but you want to have a heightened sense of urgency. You want to delight your customers. You want to have every individual reach their full potential and then collectively as a company. So there's a lot of pressure as a CEO to lead by example and really drive better outcomes over time without breaking the individual, the organization. And you have consistently created an environment a safe environment, a fun environment, a, a, an environment where, where people are inspired and committed. And you're on all these lists of like the best place to work. So what's the secret? <laughs> like, how do you do that? <laughs> because I've, not many CEOs are able to have that balance of, I love my company and I'm growing and I have that sense of urgency to compete and win. I think there are a few different things. One is I, I'm being myself. So I think part of you know, really leadership is figuring out what you are, who you want, and who, who wants to come on that authentic journey with you saying, look, this is, this is what I value. This is where I want to go, you know, who, who's in and getting the right people. But, but the one thing about our environment is we really focus, and this is the subject of my, uh, of my second book and it really came out of the whole Friday forward story, but on, on the notion of building capacity. You know, I'm always working on building my capacity and getting better as a leader, but we focus on our team members, not like making them better at work or getting better at doing that task, but how can, how can they get better overall? Better at stress management, time management, physical performance, emotional resilience. And then you know, we get the benef business benefit of all this improvement, but they're, they get the personal improvement, their family you know, gets a happier person. Like we found that's really the win-win. And so I, I mean, I try to continually raise the bar as I say, I think our culture is having a really high bar, but everyone with their hands out trying to help people over the bar. I, I think there's some leaders out there that set a high bar and kind of want to be the only person to clear it. So I, I really, I, I think that we've helped people achieve things that they didn't expect. And then that translates into business. I know we've got, we had a lot of people shared all their personal goals this year on, on a Slack channel we created. And I can see that the folks that are running marathons for the first time or Ironmans or 5Ks or doing stuff, they're all having great years in, in, in their business performance. I, I think these things are really tied in terms of improving your, your ability to grow. Wow, talking about capacity building, let's talk about a transition to mindful transition. Um, yeah. What do you mean by that? So we started, I, we're, we're kind of on a mission to eliminate the two weeks notice paradigm at Acceleration Partners. And, and a couple of years ago, we said, look, we're gonna go quickly. We're gonna need new people. People are gonna leave. People would give two weeks notice. I'm like, this just feels terrible. Like two weeks notice feels like everyone was lying. It, 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 <laughs> we're trying to build a great culture and a best place to work. So we, we, we tried to come up with a program. We said, look, we're gonna have fully open transition. We're a mindful transition program. If we see a problem or if you have a problem or think it's not the right job or want to do something different, come and have a discussion and we won't walk you to the door. We sort of took that off, off the table. And, and what it allowed us to do was to start really having discussions and find out that 
you know, you might have been, you know, Ray, your, your wife might be moving and, you know, get a job in nine months. And so, you know, you're leaving and you're not, you don't tell me the two weeks before. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Think about sports teams. You know, someone's leaving, you can play versus, hey, my wife got this great job is leaving in nine months. And we said, that's awesome. Let's figure out a plan. Start moving your work. You, sh you should stay here the whole time. I mean, there's something I always say, like, how would it work in a relationship if someone gave you two weeks notice and told you they had a, a new partner, we're moving and all this stuff? It's just it just doesn't make sense. So we really we, we've been able to we find people new jobs if it's not the right fit and, and, and just take the, the transition of people leaving as a taboo subject off the table. And so we get a lot of notice from people. We have open discussions. We help them find better, different jobs. And we have a, a really great alumni out there. And that also allows us to trust. attract more people. Well, yeah. trust, not just improve trust yeah, in, in a way that, that you know, people know that they have, you have their back. Yeah, it's radical yeah. candor. We had the- Kim Scott. Kim Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kim yeah Scott, big, big fan of like, Kim. I've, I've had her on my podcast. It, it, right, it's a foundation of trust and understanding that most of the issues aren't the root issue. Someone's performance, if you're willing to actually get to the root issue, like I said, we, most of our people work from home. If they turn out that that's not the right environment for them, great. Let's know that. Let's find you. I'll make some referrals if friends who have you know office jobs and and move on. It, it it requires emotionally getting over this being left and understanding that if someone wants to do something different, it's not a reflection of of you. Uh, Adam Grant uh, talked about and categorized people into givers, reciprocators, and, and takers. Uh, and um, I feel that for you to sit every week religiously and write what this Friday's newsletter was actually fairly lengthy, uh, a newsletter. And, and, you, and you write it, you, you write books, you contribute to a dozen like major media outlets, but it's a sign of a giver because I know running a company and you know, you know integrating work life, home life, all that is incredibly hard. But then to sit there and pen a newsletter every Friday, why did you start Friday Forward and how has it shaped you as a person, as a CEO, and you know, or as an as an individual? No, it's a great question. It started as this thing when I changed. I read Hal Hal Alrod's Miracle Morning, and I started sort of trying to improve my morning. And you're supposed to read something positive, and all the positive stuff was a little too fluffy for me. And I had collected some of these quotes and stories, so I decided I would. And again, it was a lot of it was for me and to clarify my, my thoughts. I'd send this note to my team each Friday called Friday Inspiration. And I, I figured I'd never hear anything. People started writing back saying, I love this. I look forward to it on Friday. I sent it to my team. It wasn't written about the company. And then I started sharing with a few other people and some CEOs. I said, you should do this. And eventually I couldn't be CC's people. I started the newsletter, renamed it. But I, it was just something that was very philosophically aligned with my values and what we around growing capacity, getting better. And, and I think someone has said this, and when you write a book or when you write, it clarifies a lot of things for yourself. So these are actually, I try to be careful to not have a soapbox, but you know, these are issues that I'm wrestling with and taking that 30 to 60 minutes to think about it, write it, clarify it, share it. And I, I really get as much as I get from that. I've gotten just incredible emails from people all over the world, sharing stories, thanking me, you know, right thing, right time. Um, yesterday morning, I was on a call with 100 people at a nonprofit in Ethiopia um, who, who somehow got on the list and asked me to speak. So it's it just, it's led to some incredible experiences. And I, I, I just try to focus on creating something that's valuable. And then I, I know good things will come from that. Well, now there's pressure. You got 35,000 people a week. So I know, it, is a, it is a lot of pressure. I'm, I'm always worried about putting up a stinker. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you could, you could take a whole paragraph of fluffy happiness. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm to describe but that. People send, people send, one of my most popular ones, someone, people send me stuff and they say, this, you love this story. And then I could take, combine that story with something else. And, and so, I, you know, the community does, does some of the work. But I, Fortunately, idea, not, lack of ideas has never been, been, been my issue. Uh, I have a lot of other issues, but that hasn't, that hasn't been. <laughs> I well, think your Friday, this Friday's post is going to be pretty popular. <laughs> I bet you're going to get a lot of feedback on that one. So. Yeah. Congrats. No, that's awesome. Hey, so, so CEOs and founders are really unique types of people. Um, and as, as someone that's reading the book, I mean, what are some key points for them to realize that they might have to think about to not only accelerate growth, but also understand what they need to do to have that capacity? 
Yeah, you know, if, if you read enough stories of success and growth, there's some pretty simple formulas that just come up over and over again, which is figure out who you are and what you want, you know, have values, set clear goals, get the right people in and, and, and off and, and get people out of their way, and then really tie those long-term goals to, to midterm objectives and short-term objectives. And it, it's a it's almost as simple and as hard as, as that. And I think every, every high performing organization that I have seen is just is religious around execution of those principles. They have real core values. They hire on them. They fire on them. They promote on them. You can make decisions on them. They're very clear about where they're going. Uh, we, we did something in a bunch of organizations it's called vivid vision where you write this three-year plan of what the company looks like in three years and you write, all this crazy stuff where we wrote, we're going to win all these awards when we hadn't won, we were going to have offices in four countries and we didn't have, and all that stuff has, has happened. And we didn't ever list the how we just, it was really clear to everyone. Here's where we want to go. And when you're coming to join the company, here's where we're going and how can we support you? So I, I really think that a great company and a great culture is just about consistency and authenticity. I, we can make the argument that there's some good cultures and some bad cultures, but I think that a great culture is just, the, the people that come here are frustrated. It was like there was stuff on the wall and no one ever talked about it. Our management said one thing and did another. Our culture is not right for everyone, but hopefully if they, if, if they come in they say, look, these guys are totally consistent with what they say and what they do. I just realized like, I actually want to do something different. I always talk about, there could be a culture of former athletes where it's all about, you know, competition and you're in or you're out and you award winning and you losing and, and everyone wants to play that way. And there can be another one where it's like, it rewards lifetime employment. And it, as long as they're consistent with that, I think people can identify, oh, this is the company I want to be in or the other. I, I think inconsistency and, and, and you know, lack of clarity is where most companies go wrong. So the brand, the mission, the culture all have to be in alignment for this to work. Yeah, they have to be real. I mean, if you have core values on the wall and you've never discussed them in a meeting or with any employee, take them <laughs> off the wall. Like it's, it's actually more damaging to write, you know, the, the, in, in Patty McCord's famous culture deck, I think it talks about how Enron's core values were integrity, humility, honesty, like no one at Enron got hired or promoted for, for displaying those values. So I, I have heard time and time again in onboarding our employees that they'd say they'd rather their past company had no core values than ones that they never, they painted everywhere, but never discussed again. It's like that placard you get for guidelines on meetings, right? <laughs> State <laughs> yeah. the objective. Yeah, be clear. yeah. I have an agenda right. with, with action items. Uh, okay, so, so, I mean, every company has core values and guiding principles. At some point, maybe because of success, they grow too fast, they hire too many, they, they drift away from the North Star that, that guided them from nothing to being successful. You have a company that's grown, you're successful. Again, you're getting all these accolades. What do you do specifically as a CEO to ensure that your employees are not drifting away from their core values and guiding principles? Do you I look for certain markers? Is it their behavior? They're late to meetings, they're not performing. Mean, yeah, what, how, do you, how do you know when you need to intervene to bring back, and I don't think one person can pull yeah. the company to a, but, but certainly CEO has to be accountable for, for living I, I, those words. I think it's really, you know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's number two has this great quote that show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. Wow. And, and so I really focus on rewarding those values as a culture. So I talk about them on our onboarding call and our biweekly all company meetings. We, we have core value shout outs for each of the core values. Our award ceremony at the end of the year is, is, are the core value awards. You literally win like awards for the core values. So I'm really trying to shine a, a light on that around the organization and how, how we want people to behave and, and, and pointing out things and actions where we, we do debriefs on anything that goes wrong. And so we'd say, look, we made a mistake here and, and here's why, and here's how we could have done it better. So we, I, you know, I, I'm strongly in agreement with like Ray Dalio on this. We, we try to make mistake, you know, you can make a mistake, but you have to document it, share it, say what you would have did wrong. You know, making mistakes is fine. Repeating mistakes is, or, or hiding mistakes is, is not at all. Right. 
fail fast, but don't repetitively fail the same way. <laughs> yeah, when you fail, like help other people understand <laughs> what they can learn from that. That the debrief, it, you know, comes out of the military. So we have a failure of a certain type. You are compelled to write a debrief that you share with the expanded leadership team about what went wrong and what you could have done better. I love that accountability. At the end of the day, it's transparency, accountability, empathy, trust. Absolutely. I agree with you. We are here with Bob Glazer, CEO and founder at Acceleration Partners, AP. You can follow him at Robert underscore Glazer. Catch his book on Amazon. If you haven't seen the link, sign there up the for chat. newsletter. How do people sign get your up? newsletter? Yeah, how do we get your newsletter? How do we get your uh, newsletter? You can Google FridayFord.com and you'll find it or it's FridayFWD.com. Awesome. All awesome. right. Very, very cool. Thanks for being on the show and just across the river here. <laughs> Thanks, <guys. laughs> Thanks, Bob. All Thanks right. Happy Friday. He crushed it. He was great. So, yeah. you know, so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, when you have a smart, caring CEO, your company's going to do well. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's great to have. We, we, we are very fortunate to have a great number of CEOs on our show, so we get to learn a lot. But it's time for us to shift and learn about really impactful, meaningful digital marketing. So it's our privilege to have Jen Grant, Chief Marketing Officer at Looker. Uh, Jen spent the last 15 years building powerhouse brands from, the brands from the ground up as the first executive marketing hire at Box. And we've had Aaron Levy on the show and he's amazing. She oversaw its growth from a small consumer backup startup to an industry leading enterprise content collaboration company used by majority of Fortune 500 companies. After Box, Jen spent a few years advertising Homebrew's portfolio on the board of directors of nonprofit K-12 team and led the rebrand of Elastic as CMO. Prior to Box, Jen spent four years at Google leading the Google Apps, EDU, Gmail, and book search marketing teams. Another great follow on Twitter because that's the only people we bring on to Disrupt TV at Real Jen Grant, R-E-A-L-J-E-N-G-R-A-N-T. Welcome Jen to Disrupt TV. Hey, happy Friday. Jen's still a little bit on mute. Uh, we'll figure out how to get her off mute. But uh, one of the things- All right, how's that? Oh, perfect. Uh, Hi, Jen. Excellent. You hear me now. Okay, good. <laughs> Awesome. It's nice to be here, you guys. Yeah, you know, this is awesome. I mean, you know, you have one of the toughest jobs in the world today because a CMO today, a million different things. They're doing brand, they're doing demand gen, they're doing like internal yeah. comms to figure out community events. and yeah. events. I mean, what does it take to be a good CMO and, and, and what, what helps you get there? Yeah, such a good question because it is such a broad role. It's not just the demand gen and the analytics and the data and understanding your funnel, but you have to turn around and think about uh, what, what is my customer's experience? Are they actually, once a customer, are they having a great experience? Are they going to buy more? Are we going to sell more seats? Are there, you know, are there things that we as marketers need to do with you know, a user conference to bring our customers together to create a community. And when you look at all those different expertise, it's really challenging for the CMO because it's very different from, you know, our, our favorite counterpart is head of sales. Their, their job is take my best reps and make more of them. Like, how do I make everyone as great as that guy? And, um, and, and for CMO, it's every single individual on my team is bringing a different expertise to the table. Sure, sure. I was running engineering when my company CEO gave me a call over the weekend and said, when you come in Monday, I'm going to introduce you as the CMO of our company. And I thought it was, I thought I was being, you know, punked. And, uh, and, uh, but he wanted me to bring some of the science and discipline and the numbers of running engineering into the world of marketing. And I felt, all right, that's cool. Bringing science into marketing makes sense. We're a more data-driven world. But I, and I did that for three some odd years. But then I look back and go, has the pendulum of art and science gone too far to the science part and too little on the art part? And all of us know here that when we gravitate toward a brand or a story or a narrative, it's the art that's doing it. It's not the, it's not yeah. the per se. But can you talk about that? What are, what are your feelings about data and yeah. art and marketing? Absolutely, and, and I am, it's funny because Looker is all about data and understanding the data behind your business. But I, as a, as a marketer, I'm a huge believer in the emotion and the brand and the connection. And I think, there's been this 
this shift in branding that, I mean, you can even see today in Nike's new swath of, of fantastic virtuals. Like this, this is a brand that is taking a, an opinion, like a stand, and there is no data that they could have run that said, is this a good idea or not? Like it had to be something where they believed it was the right thing to do and, you know, you watch those videos and you think, like, that's bold. That's like, you know, I, I, you know either you want to be a part of it or you don't want to be a part of it. But you, the brands today that are doing so well are the ones that are, they have opinions and they're not afraid to, to say that. They're, you know, they're, they're, and there's risk to it. So there's this balance of risk and emotion and you capture some people and you piss other people off. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> you need to see more of that creativity. Like all I can say, and I don't know about you, but last year's Super Bowl was the worst set of commercials <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. They were, they were so humor tested. They went through all the lawyers. No one had the balls or the gall to go out and say, let's make a call, right? They were all looking around like focus groups. And you know, I like data, but let's talk about creativity in a data-driven world. How do you bring both right together in what we call digital yeah. art. Yeah, and I, I think it comes from, you still have to have the data because you do have to have that baseline understanding of, you know, whether it's you've done research or surveys or whether you're looking at the data of your funnel of what are the pieces of content that your users are reacting to. If you have all of that, that's kind of the basis to sit down with your team and say, okay, so we know people are compelled by this. And we know that in the research that these things are the things that drive them to take action or that they, they sort of fit with their worldview. So once you have that, then it's that moment where you, you, know, you kind of let it loose and say, what crazy thing could we do that might be inspired by what we've learned? Um, and then I think as a leader, you know, my job is often not to be the person with like the best idea, like, I'm gonna do this, we're gonna do it, everybody. And they go, oh, okay. Um, it's, it's much more effective to sort of get everyone throwing in the crazy, crazy ideas out there and to say like, okay, there's no bad idea and let's build on it. And then to be able to go, ha, that one, this one, I can, I can see this one. Let's go with this one because I can like, and then everyone starts building on it. Like, oh, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. And you're like, okay, this one has legs. Let's do it. That makes sense. I was thinking about the last um, Super Bowl commercial that I still remember is the when the lights went out and Oreo cookies right there, you can still dip in the time. <laughs> and that's probably three, four years old, but I, that was so quick and witty and real time. It, it, was, it spoke about, uh, uh, you know, just agility of a, of a, of a brand. Um, exactly. for, for us who are social executives, where, you know, where we believe that the smartest person in the room is the room, how do you... Yeah. CMO democratized access to data. So it's not just yeah. quarterly business review, or it's not just the CXOs that have good insight into the business. Every employee at the, every level, especially the ones that are customer facing employees, have the insights they need to make the right informed decisions to delight customers. How do you do that? Yeah, and, and it's critically important. We have this, uh, this acronym that we use called the HIPPO which is the highest paid person's opinion. And I think, you know, for so long, business has really been run at the end of the day by the hippo, the person who waltzes in the room, this is what we're gonna do. And, you know, and if you don't have any sort of basis in data or any sort of shared understanding of what's going on for real, it's really hard to argue opinion versus opinion. And so then the hippo wins. Um, and so we, we talk about how do you, how you fight the hippo and that sort of way of doing business. And um, this is where the technology that we have today can really help. And we have to get over being afraid to make sure that everybody has access to it. And, and it's sort of a two-way street. Everyone in a company needs to start to understand how to read data, how to learn from it, how to take something from like, oh, I can see this chart is showing this and that, and then to know what the next right question is. Like, oh, does that mean that this is happening? Well, let's look into that. 
And so that sort of being able to build that data culture is certainly not simple, but the advantages of being able to have everyone at the table have sort of that shared view is really important to sort of get over the you know, decision made by HIPPO. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, I talk a lot about in, um, you know, in keynotes or, you know, in bylines that I've written is this is actually a really interesting take on how to help with diversity and to get diverse ideas on the table. Because if everybody has that same access, that same sort of, you know, your, your sales and your marketing leader are looking at the same data. So there's not a fight of wills. It doesn't become who's louder or who's the hippo or, you know, it becomes a, oh, okay, we're looking at the same data. I can do this. Can you do that? Let's work on this together. And so it gets all of the ideas and gives everyone um, more ability to contribute. You know, you, you talk about that as well. Data's role in, in really empowering women in technology and data's role mm -hmm. is diversity. I mean, one of the interesting things that people can start also looking at is also diversity of disciplines, right? Yeah. It's not just yeah. the diversity of a race or gender orientation or geography. I mean, there's also diversity in, hey, do you have enough humanities majors? Or can you balance them out with yeah. you know, someone that has a different perspective or, or an ethics background yeah. or a philosophy major? So talk a little bit more yeah. about that and how that, you know, access to data, it starts with that access, equal access to data, helps to give people um, that an opportunity to figure out how to, you know, create better understanding. Yes, and I think it's it's the idea of diversity of ways of thinking. So if we all lived in the same house and grew up with the same set of parents and went to the same schools, we're all going to probably think along the same lines. And if you have multiple people that come from different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, different education. They, they're all going to attack the problem or think about the problem in a different way. And so if you have that level playing field of everyone being able to say, oh, okay, I understand, you know, and it's, it's not the, you know, there are many companies that you'll hear, well, the CEO gets the special report that there's a team of 15 people that create it every week. And it's the CEO has the, you know, da, 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 this is how the business is doing. And it's, the rest of the company doesn't have access to that. Those diverse ways of thinking aren't ever going to be allowed to sort of flourish and 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 help um, because it you know because there's really only one person who understands sort of what's going on in that scenario. Information hoarders? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, and it's the power structure, right? It's like you know that the data has and the data have nots, and you've got the the data and you know and every company I've been at. You, you see this happen, even in the biggest tech companies, there are the people who like, well, I have access to go in and do the SQL query to get out the stuff, and I can say, well, the data says blah, 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 so therefore your idea is wrong. And so, like, how do you get into the point where everyone says, well, we're all looking at the data, and now let's talk about what we can do about it instead of my data, your data, I know more than you, you know, this sort of, sort of power conversation that we, we often have. So what, so, okay, so you were at Google and Box and now Looker, you know, uh, digital native, super analytical, smart companies. Um, yeah. That understand the data foundation towards uh, achieving successful digital transformation. And we're fighting hippos uh, in terms of uh, making sure that there's a balanced approach in making informed decisions, not just based on your title and your salary and right. your office. Okay, now fast forward to today and the very near future where the hippos are now debating AI-powered algorithms. So you've got yeah. the machine learning looking at your funnel and looking at all your, your omni-channel contact behavior, structured and unstructured data. You're doing sentiment yeah. analysis and tone analysis and predictive and prescriptive. And now the algorithm is telling the CMO or the campaign manager or the social media manager or the content yeah. Team, this is what you need to do because our algorithm says you have 90% chance of scoring the deal if you did this. How do you manage an environment where algorithms are guiding marketing? I mean, what, what is, what is yeah. your point of view in, in terms of impact of AI in marketing? Yeah, so it's, it's an incredibly important topic because 
when you dive down into what AI machine, you know, this whole sort of take huge amounts of data and learn from them, if you dive in and really understand what that means, it means we're training the machines, for lack of a better word, we're training the machines to do everything like the majority. So we're saying all the opinions of the majority, of our history, of those people who were allowed a voice, of, you know, the history books are written by the winners, not necessarily the actual reality of what happened. So all of that data is feeding into the machine and there is a huge potential for it to reinforce the bad things about our society that we would like to move past. And um, one, of the, one of the sort of sort of calls to get working is with this transition to, to having all these algorithms and predictive and you know all these things, is that moment to stop and realize that, okay, we have just trained the machine on everything that we do and some of it we're happy about and some of it we're not and that is that's actually why it's so critically important for um, those diverse voices to be a part of these conversations about how the algorithm is used and built and because in in most cases um, the 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 it's that minority voice that actually is more critical into saying, wait, 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 we don't actually want to make that decision because there are side cases where someone could actually get hurt if a decision is made without taking that into consideration. So I'm sort of, I'm passionate about it because it's, right. it's like the, there's so much good data can do, but there's also the sort of the warning. <laughs> Super smart. Yeah, you know, we, we have a few design principles for AI, for ethical AI. Um, one of them is mm -hmm. to, to think about having the transparency of the algorithm. The other one is making yeah. sure it's sustainable. Bias is okay, but you have to be able to know that's, that's the bias you wanted, right? And if it's not, you yeah. want to be able to reverse those algorithms. And then over time, we got to train these systems, right? 98% accuracy in manufacturing, perfect. 90% accuracy yeah. in healthcare, no. <laughs> so then, <laughs> you don't want the machines to lead, right? You got to make sure they're human led, Somewhere in the middle, put an inefficient human in the middle, and somewhere towards the end, put another human, right? And at least she's <laughs> not taking over us. But hey, I want to ask you one last question, and I think it's really important. It's I'm seeing a lot of B2C, B2C CMOs try to take a stake in the enterprise, and they're not mm -hmm. doing really well, right? I mean, <laughs> the logo for ServiceNow looks like a toilet seat. Like, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> You look at. I, I mean, believe you mentioned. That. All right, all right. You look, you look at. You know, you look at a lot of the other consumer CMOs trying to figure out enterprise right now. Now, really successful one is Anne Lewin at Adobe. She's done a great job of of putting the brand out. Their funniest enterprise commercials. You get that right, but but that's a big transition. What advice do you have for those B two C CMOs taking their first stance in enterprise? Because you you've seen it all. That's a good question. Yes. And I think the critical, I would start with this is, and I think everyone does this, oh, it's B2B. So we're now selling to an enterprise. We're selling to a business. So let's take all of our stuff and make it boring and use lots of words and long sentences and like that's what businesses buy. And, and so the, the flip side is you're selling to people. Even though those people work for businesses, they're still people and they still, you know, I, I've had funny conversations with, you know, the, the tech CEOs in the Valley who said, I don't, I don't think sales matters. People buy, they'll just buy on logic. Like, won't they just click and buy if it's logically the right thing to do? And I have to say, no, they're human. Humans all, all the time will buy on emotion and then later they'll figure out why. Here's the logic that supported my emotional decision. And so you've got to actually address the fact that these are people. And so you still need to inspire them. They still need to feel safe and comfortable and happy and approachable. And you're going to be there for them. You're going to have support that helps them. All of that. We're here with one of the top CMOs in the Valley. Definitely an inspiration. The real Jen Grant. You can follow her on Twitter. Jen Grant, CMO, CMO at Looker and uh, definitely catch up with her, a lot of insights, and thank you for being on the show. You were terrific. Thank, thank you. you. So, happy Friday, look at this. We are, yeah. we are flying through here, the first Dude, show ever. A hug. Ah. <laughs> this is the first show we've Paul ever Greenberg been together. Paul Greenberg would be proud. <laughs>
the first show ever. We have been here together all at once. I cannot believe it. Episode 121, the first live show together. We need to come to Boston. We need to do this more often. Or we can do it. We can do it out there. So, but what's going on? We got episode 122. A lot of interesting folks popping up. Who do we have coming we're, in? We're getting close to 300 guests uh, that we've had on the show. So we'll uh, announce that milestone when it officially happens. Next week's show, we have Anoop Nanra, director and head of blockchain DLT initiatives at Cisco. So it's amazing to have insight of Cisco in terms of blockchain innovation. Dave Moss, CTO and co-founder of Blue Prism. RPA, baby. We're yeah, there you go. And we have repeat guest Doug Henshin, vice president and principal analyst at Constellation. So it's going to be like lots of big brains blowing Ray and I and our audience next, uh, next Friday. So if you're a technologist, uh, this is a, a, a can't miss show for you next week. All right, and one special announcement. We will announce this in a few weeks. December 10th, think Vince Cerf, Tim Berners-Lee, Steve Wozniak, Wendy Hall, uh, Hiroshi Ishii. Um, I mean, it, we're talking big names, talking about the future of the internet, talking about human rights in a digital age. December 10th at the Fairmont in San Jose. Hold that date. Tickets are gonna be on sale. Sponsorships are lining up. It is gonna be one of the most historic events of the year. Amazing. And it's the 70th anniversary of the UN Human Rights Declaration. And right. you decided to bring the inventor of the web and the inventor of the internet to come talk about it. That's pretty well, cool. They all got together <laughs> and we'll talk more about this. But this is gonna be the event of the year. Amazing. Hold those dates Amazing. and we're gonna have different ways for people to participate. And of course, we're gonna live stream this to everybody. December 10th. December 10th. All right, well, if it's Friday. It's Disrupt TV. Thanks everyone. Hey, thanks everyone. This has been awesome. Thank mm -hmm. you.